The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on all your people. Selah. You may be seated. Well, we've, uh, we've walked through the double doors of uh, the Psalter, so to speak. Psalm 1 and 2 are like two double doors that beg us to walk into this book of the Bible. We have walked in... Uh, we've walked into this book, the Bible, and now we come to what I guess you could argue is really sort of the first, um, the first prayer, the first psalm um, that comes with a title, definitely, as we see King David wrestling and praying to God out of a very specific circumstance in his life. The title that we're giving to the sermon this morning is Mighty to Save, And the main idea that uh, David wants us to see in this psalm is this, that in the midst of crisis, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of turmoil, God's people can have confidence in God's ability to save. So if you find yourself or have ever found yourself in a place where trouble, difficulty, trial, suffering, tumult, turmoil, crisis, Calamity is just in your lap. It's in your face. How ought the people of God to react? David models for us what that should look like right now. In the midst of crisis, God's people can react this way. They can react with great confidence. Confidence in God's ability to save in the midst of that trial. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in the text before us. Father, we ask you to move in a mighty way to take these words, make them to pierce our hearts, pierce our minds. I ask that you, Holy Spirit, by your power, would cause us to experience and thus be able to say, like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us as we sit and meditate and true on the truth of this psalm, Psalm 3. God, pierce, open, work these truths deep into our soul so that we may not merely be hearers of the word, but then would leave this morning as doers of the word as well. It is in your name, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. 
A few weeks ago when we began this series in the book of Psalms, I compared the Psalms to something like a, a photo journal. Um, a photo journal specifically that displays pictures, pictures of what it looks like to pursue God in real life. If you want a book of the Bible that just shows real people doing real life as they seek their real and living God, the book of Psalms is incredible for that. And with the introduction of Psalm 3, what we're now doing is we're getting a glimpse of really, in a sense, this first picture of what pursuing God in real life looks like. In a nutshell, if you wanted to take that little picture inside the photo journal that we know as the book of Psalms, and you want to see the little Sharpie inscription that was scribbled under there describing the essence of the photo, the essence of the photo of Psalm 3 would be this. It is a picture of saving faith. It's a picture of saving faith, where Psalm 1 asked us the question, which path am I on? And Psalm 2 then questioned, which worldview do I hold? Psalm 3 wants to challenge us with where we put our confidence in times of trouble. If you notice, Psalm 3 is ascribed as a psalm of David, and it was born out of a very specific event in his Life. Most of us in our Bible, what you should see is Psalm 3, and there's usually a title. And then if you look under that, that superscription there, there'll be tiny little font that will give you some information. Psalm of David. And then it specifically tells us that this is a Psalm of David that um, he prayed in his life when he was forced to flee from his son, Absalom. If you want to know the background to this story, you can go back to the book of 2 Samuel and work through chapters 13 through 18. That's where you start to learn about Absalom. That's where you start to learn about how he begins to plot and overthrow his dad, trying to seek the kingdom and pull the kingdom away from his dad. What you'll learn is that David's son tried to seize David's kingship by actually snuffing out David's life and snuffing out anyone who associated themselves with David. And it's this trouble, it's this specific crisis which drove David to prayer. Prayer that we know and have before us in Psalm chapter 3. But even though Psalm chapter 3 is tied to a specific event in David's life, so you might be saying, okay, listen, I don't have a son named Absalom, and he's not trying to overthrow me, and I don't have a kingdom, so like, what does this have to do with me? Well, the beauty of the scriptures is that the way King David was carried along by the Holy Spirit and wrote Psalm 3 is, yes, it was overly pertinent for his life, at this time, but the way he wrote Psalm 3 is that there is beautiful carryover to our lives as well. He wrote in such a way that when we face similar circumstances like he faced in Psalm chapter 3, we can identify with his words. And that is why Psalm chapter 3 is a model of what it looks like to have confidence in God's ability to save. You see, whenever crisis strikes, and it will, when troubles arise, and they will, when foes are many, when ones we love betray us and hurt us and seek our harm, we have a choice in that moment. 
we can turn from God to self-trust or we can turn to God in full trust. And Psalm 3 calls us to fully trust in our God who is mighty to save us in the midst of our crisis. Even when the crisis might be screaming in our face, this is no time to trust God. David is going to model before us, no, 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 no. When you're in crisis, that is exactly when you need to have full trust in God. So, where does Psalm 3 begin? Look at verse 1, and you'll notice that it begins with the crisis. There are enemies all around. Look at verse 1. O Lord, it's Yahweh there. Lord is in all caps. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Notice this first off, that David sees the situation before him with extreme clarity. He is not confused. He sees the situation clearly of what is taking place before him. His foes are many. His foes are mean. They are rising against him. And his foes, they're very mouthy. Listen to what they're saying. There is no salvation for David in God. In saying this, David's enemies don't mean that God cannot help David. But what they are saying is that Yahweh will not help David. In other words, their opinion of David is that he is beyond being saved. His actions, his attitude, his words have moved him beyond the saving arm of Yahweh. His attitudes and actions have moved him beyond Yahweh's care. So some of us have wrestled with this truth before because of things that we've said, actions that we've done, words that we've spoken, thoughts that we've had, whatever it might be, where we go, man, I did that one thing, and it's that one thing that I feel like maybe moved me just a little bit beyond the boundary of God's saving care, God's saving grace. And it's not helpful when someone comes along and begins to accuse us with words that we're fearfully wrestling with in our mind. That's what's going on in David's world right now. If you go back into 2 Samuel, what you'll find is that David is in this situation by his own doing because of the whole Bathsheba incident and the murder of Uriah and the wonky sort of relationship that he had with his son Absalom. And so now these people have turned against him. And what they're saying is, David, I don't know what you think about Yahweh, but what you need to know this, he doesn't care to save you because of the attitudes and the actions that you've been doing. And so what David sees in verses 1 and 2 is simply this. He learns in this particular crisis, like so many of us have learned in various crises and troubles and chaos and calamity as well, is that there will always be enemies who will line themselves against us, seeking to accuse us before God. Enemies, unfortunately, who come in all shapes and sizes. You see, David's crisis was marked by thousands of enemies who wanted him overthrown. Basically, they wanted him to lose his job. 
Now, you may not have thousands of enemies seeking your ouster, but how many enemies does it take to make life miserable and possibly even lead to the loss of your job? From personal experience, some of us can raise our hand and say this, it only takes one, it doesn't take thousands. For David, his crisis involved imminent military battle as Absalom and his forces arrayed themselves against the king. Now again, you may not be facing an imminent military battle. Some of you are like, man, you don't know what my house looks like in the morning. It's like, I understand, but maybe this David's situation was just a little bit different. He had, he had an imminent military battle looming in the forefront. His son was rallying the troops. They were going to, in a militaristic way, seek to overthrow the king. Again, you're probably not facing an imminent military battle when you wake up most mornings, but what you need to know this is that according to the scriptures, you are facing a battle. For instance, the climate at your workplace may be one of open warfare where everyone is trying to defeat everyone else with weaponized words. You ever been in that situation before? Weaponized words of rumors, words of lies, words of gossip. Words of misrepresentation. You ever been on the end of someone who just for whatever reason has you as the bullseye of their life and they weaponize their words in such ways to where they seek to misrepresent you with actions and words because they just seem to have it out for you. Or again, you may not be attacked by soldiers commanded by your son as David was attacked by Absalom, but your children may hate you or may have betrayed you for what you stand for. And notice that for David, the sting of this crisis was very close. It involved not that guy with a nameless face out there somewhere. It was his son, a son whom he loved. And this sting of the betrayal of someone close, some of us know all too well this familiar sting as our husband or wife, whom we thought to be an ally, proved themselves to be an enemy. So here is David. Crisis is all around him. Chaos is in his face, calamity is at his side. And so the question becomes, what is David going to do? What's he going to do? It's so subtle that you might think this is too obvious to be stated. But if you are like me, I need the obvious things stated in my life. What does David do? Notice this first, that David talks to Yahweh about his crisis. Did you know that we can go and talk to the Lord God about the crisis? See, here's my tendency when crisis hits. I want to talk about my crisis to everyone but God. I want to go and pour out all the calamity, all the chaos, all the turmoil, all the tumult. I want to turn inside. I want to look in self-trust. I want to get upset. Why me? Why now? Why this situation? How come I'm the one on the receiving end of this? And it's just a one big giant navel-gazing pity party for myself, thrown by myself, where I'm launching ticker tape up in the air, and I'm just throwing a big, bad pity party for me. Unfortunately, Pastor Jonathan, that is my initial go-to response. Calamity is blowing up in David's face, and his first initial reaction is this. The Lord, I'm going to go talk to him about this crisis. 
He is the one to whom I need to talk to right now in this moment. I think it's important for us to see this. David models for us when the opening word of Psalm 3 is, Oh, Lord! That is us. He's calling us, saying, when crisis lands in your lap, go to Yahweh. Go to the Lord. We can pour out our anguish at the feet of our God. But second, what is David going to do? Notice this. David models for us what would become the wise counsel of a Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. McShane did not live a very long life. He is a, uh, was a very, very godly man. And he said this, one of his probably most famous quotes, and you probably have heard this before. McShane said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. You see, when crisis comes, the temptation is to so focus on our trouble that we lose sight of our living God. So it's not that we ignore the crisis as though it's no big deal. So, so what David is not modeling for us and what McShane does not say is like, listen, when you have crisis and trouble and, and turmoil and tumult in your life, don't sweep it under the rug. Don't go around like an ostrich with your head stuck in the sand. Yes, seek to get clarity about the reality which is yours now. Do that. Take one look to self. There's enemies all around me. See that situation clearly. But, says McShane, but models King David, we're also to not consume our heart and mind with the crisis at hand. McShane's counsel is that, yes, we should fight to get a clear understanding of the situation, but when that is done, we must fight, and we must fight, and we must fight again to behold our God who is sovereign over this situation and our Lord who is mighty to save in this situation. Listen, you and I will become what we behold we will become what we behold. And if we behold our crisis more than our Savior, fear will overwhelm our faith in him. Have you guys ever been in that situation before? Big crisis, and you get so wrapped up with everything, the thinking, the emotions, the feelings, the thoughts, the what-ifs, the what-hows, the whys, the whens, the wheres, and you're looking, you're looking, you're looking, looking, and what happens is what begins to grow and birth in your heart? Fear, 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 and somehow that fear gets so big, and what is going in, in reverse proportion is this. God is just telling how I'm getting small and small and small and small and small and small. McShane and David say, no, 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 no. Rightly identify the trouble and then look to God, 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 and remind yourselves of this truth. He is sovereign. He is mighty to save. And that means even in my calamity in my situation that I'm in right now. You don't have time to tease this out, but if you go into the book of Numbers, I think it is, when the 12 are supposed to go into the promised land, they went in there, they saw giants, 10 of them came back and said, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. Two of them came back and said, this ain't no thing for God. They saw the same thing. Two of them had a right understanding of God in the situation is that the giants look like grasshoppers to the Lord who sits in the heavens and does as he pleases. Ten of them came back and said, I don't know if we can do this. I think that's a biblical example of this principle being 
being played out before us. And so guess what? This reality of looking to our crisis but then taking ten looks to the living God, that's exactly what David does. Now that he's taken a look at the crisis, he sets his gaze on the confidence. And what's his confidence? His confidence is in Yahweh's unchanging character. Listen, you're going to serve yourself by understanding this about the Psalms. One of the ways the Psalms works is this. Let what you know drive what you do. Let what you know drive what you do. So often, we let what we feel drive what we do. So you go into a situation and the crisis at hand and you're like, that feels overwhelming. I feel afraid. I feel scared. And we let that fear drive our actions. David is saying this. This is a real deal crisis in my world right now. How am I going to get balance in my soul right now? I am going to remind myself of what I know about the living God so that as I remind myself about what I know concerning the living God, that reality will anchor my soul in the midst of this turmoil. That's exactly what verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 are about. Remember, in the midst of crisis, God's people can have great confidence in the unchanging character of God. And like a ballast in the belly of a ship, Yahweh's unchanging character is David's anchor in the storm. So what unchanging attributes of Yahweh anchor David and thus should anchor us? He tells us, starting in verse 3, look what he writes. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. There's one. My glory. There's one. The lifter of my head. There's another one. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. That's another one. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. So what sort of God does David have? Look at, it's almost like David is saying this. Guys, come on, let's just, let's think about this. Let's think about this. When crisis comes, what attributes of God can we remind ourselves in so that as we remind ourselves about the unchanging character of Yahweh, the unchanging character of Yahweh becomes like a ballast in the belly of our soul so that as the storms of crisis and calamity and chaos rage against us, they might knock us over, but we get righted back up. They hit us and we get right back up. Why? Because a ballast in the belly of a ship stops it from blowing over. The ballast of the unchanging character of Yahweh keeps you upright in the storms of life. So he's like, let's think. Let's get theological. Let's reorient ourselves to the nature of who Yahweh is. And what does he say? First he says this, he is the Lord who protects He's the Lord who protects. For you, O Lord, are a shield about me. A shield is a protective device. Yahweh is our defense who shields us from danger. In crisis, we can trust in our God who protects his people. To compare Yahweh to a shield is to declare the protective power of God. So Yahweh's protection is David's confidence in crisis. Number two, second, David says, he is the Lord who is sufficient. Sufficient. You, O Lord, are 
my glory. You are sufficient to be the source of my significance. While the imagery of a shield is pretty clear, and it's a clear way that you see the Bible talking about Yahweh over and over again, for David to say, Yahweh is my glory, that's sort of a, a funny little turn of phrase. We don't use that a lot. But we're helped when we understand that this turn of phrase, for someone to be my glory, that this turn of phrase can be used to describe a person's uh, source of reputation, a person's um, significance. So before this crisis hit, David had the love of his son. David had the popular acclaim of the people. David had a pretty kicking kingdom. All things that can be tempting as a source of confidence. So it could be that at a certain point of time, if you were to walk up to David and go, hey, what makes you a significant king? What's your source of reputation? And people use this. Have you seen the glory of David's kingdom? He's got a son that loves him, and he's got a, a kingdom. He's ruling, and he's reigning. He's got the popular acclaim of the people. And when these good things are going on in our lives, the temptation of our heart is begin to say my significance my identity as a person is found in these things guess what popular acclaim gone love of a son gone kingdom gone and what david is saying when he says oh yes 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 yes, yes. the lord he is my glory what david is saying is that this crisis has been reorienting for his heart and his soul David learns, just as we are to learn, that our significance, our identity, our reputation is not and cannot be found in sources like these. Only Yahweh can be our all-sufficient source of confidence. So Yahweh's sufficiency is David's source of confidence. Third, David says, he is the Lord who restores. For you, O Lord, are the lifter of my head. Crisis can have a way of causing us to lower our head in shame. Especially when our trouble is in our lap because of decisions and actions of our own making. But David's confidence is that when sin beats us down, the sufficient God who protects loves to lift up. So the gracious restoration of Yahweh is David's confidence. Look at verse 4. We see that the Lord, he is the Lord who listens. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Though others may not hear David nor care to answer David, he has great confidence that Yahweh is not like this. David's confidence is that God not only hears our prayer, but delights to answer our prayer as well. When crisis hits, listen, when crisis hits, it is great confidence for you and it is great confidence for me to know that the living God delights to hear our prayers. And lastly, David has great confidence in the Lord who sustains. You see that in verse 5. Yahweh is the one who sustains us. One of the ways that I intentionally try to just put this in front of our, our kids in a small, small way 
is that when we pray before our meals, I try to say things like this. God, we're, 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 not, we're not fooled. Like last night, my pub burger from Culver's and my cheese curds. Very delicious. In a sense, Culver's are the ones who provided them. But have you ever just thought about, like, where did the grain come from that got crushed to turn into the breading that covered that cheese curd? Where did the milk come from that was given up to produce the cheese that I was scarfing down by the fistfuls? I'm not a fool. It came from the Lord. And my meal at Culver's last night was a simple minder, reminder that that cheese curd was like the 1,000th plus way that the Lord was faithfully sustained yesterday. See, it's getting down into the nitty-gritty of recognizing that every dollar, every breath, every meal, every day, every week, every month, every year, it all comes from the Lord who sustains. And notice, this is what I love about, about verse 5. This is probably one of my, my favorite parts in this whole psalm. Notice that David is so confident in God's ability to sustain his life that in the midst of his crisis, at the exact moment that you would think would warrant a full-blown freakout from David, this is the moment David decides to straight up catch a snooze. I lay down and slept. No, 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 no. Like your son is trying to overthrow your kingdom. Shouldn't you be like, like spinning out of control and really worried and emotionally driven and really fearful and this and that and this and that. And he's like, Ooh, let's chat about this in the morning. And he's out. I woke up again. I caught a snooze. In the midst of crisis, especially in the midst of crisis. Why? For the Lord sustains. You see, David's confident understanding of Yahweh's sustaining power happily alleviates any sense that I need to play and act like God in the midst of my crisis right now. See, that's sort of the genesis of self-trust, is when crisis hits, we sort of do this really quick mental math. Okay, do I really trust that God can be God in my situation? And most of us go, I don't know that I can really trust God to be God in my situation. So what's the next best thing in the mental math that we do? Well, I'll just try to play God in my situation. And David models for us what it looks like to go, Noah, I'm going to really trust God to be God in this situation. I'm going to go so trust God to be God in this situation. I'm actually going to take a nap right now and trust that my life is in his hands and he is going to do as he pleases and I can trust him in this right now. Yahweh's sustained power happily, happily alleviates any sins in David's heart, soul, and mind that he has to play God in this crisis. Listen. David knows what the psalmist knows in Psalm 121, namely this, that it is Yahweh who keeps us. And according to the psalmist, the one who keeps us is also the one who neither slumbers nor sleeps. Therefore, we can sleep, we can slumber, even in the midst of our crisis. This, friends is great confidence. The call to rest in God's absolute ability to sustain us in our crisis is the call for our delusional God complex to die. 
We don't have to take God's responsibility on our shoulders. We cannot. God's part is to sustain, and our part is to confidently rest in that sustenance. So hear what David is saying as he rolls into verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Do I have a crisis? He's like, well, brother, do I have a crisis? But he says, I'll, I also have, have, have this, a great confidence. What David says is this, in the middle of my mess, I know my God. And in the face of this turmoil, I can and I will confidently rest on my protecting God, my sufficient God, my restoring God, my listening God, my sustaining God. And I'm going to so confidently rest in Him, my attitude informed by these truths of God will lead to an action of me genuinely going, resting. So resting, I'm going to take a, take a nap right there in the middle of my crisis. It's like David is saying this, because you, O oh Lord, are what you are. Fear in this crisis can truly dissipate. Verse 6, I will not be afraid. That's not saying he's not feeling that fear or that emotion. When your son is trying to overthrow you with a military coup, you might be a little scared, but what he's saying is this, my fear is not going to drive what I do. I'm going to volitionally exercise what I know about God, and that is going to drive how I operate and act in this moment. I'm not going to be afraid of thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So David's crisis gives way to David's confidence, resulting thirdly and lastly in David's great hope, namely, that salvation belongs to the Lord. This is his hope. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Look at verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Beautiful truth. Listen to this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing beyond your people. In the midst of crisis, God's people have a great confidence. You and I, listen, you and I have a great confidence in the midst of crisis because God is mighty to save mighty to save. Salvation has one source and one source alone, Yahweh the Lord God. Saved in the belly of the well, the prophet Jonah prayed, salvation belongs to the Lord. The prophet Isaiah records the words of the Lord who declares, I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. And it's the Apostle John who gives us a glimpse of how this reality of the Lord to him belongs salvation is going to play out in all eternity when he writes in the book of Revelation chapter 7 of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb 
They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They're crying out with a loud voice, what? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see, from the beginning to the end of time, the echoing refrain of the Bible is that Yahweh is mighty to save. The song of the redeemed is the Lord. He is my salvation. Salvation belongs to him. That is the echoing refrain when we get into heaven. The guys like Connor are going to have one job to do, play one song. The Lord is mighty to save. The Lord is mighty to save. And that song will never get old. That is the refrain and the song and the anthem that is on the lips of God's people for all eternity. But notice this. That our saving God is also the God who will seek vengeance. Verse 7. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. I need you to dial in here. This, this verse right here, and there's, there's many like this in the book of Psalms. Um, some of us hear words like these, and we get very, very upset. We get very upset. After all, this prayer is asking God to get violent. Or for others of us, a verse like this disturbs because David, he, David just seems so vengeful. After all, he is the one praying these words. But notice, but notice that David is not vengeful. He's not taking punishment into his own hands. Look at what he's doing. Rather, he is, he is committing vengeance to the Lord and asking him for deliverance. In the New Testament, like some of us look at this, and many will look at this and go, ah, oh, that really old, angry, wrathful God of the Old Testament. The New Testament God is a God of love. Until you actually go read the New Testament. And then you go to a place like Romans chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul reminds us of the same thing that we're reading here in Psalm 3 when he wrote to the early Christians in Rome, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Listen, if David, here's what David knows right now, and you guys need to see this because the, 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 the link and the jump forward to us is crucial. Listen, if David is going to be saved in this situation, then his enemies must be destroyed by God. God will have to bring these enemies down because David cannot save himself. And here's the good news that you and I need to hear this morning. Neither can we. Neither can we. Like David, you and I cannot save ourselves. In Psalm chapter 3, David needed physical salvation from the clutches of Absalom, his son. And if deliverance was going to come, it was going to come as Yahweh struck and broke his enemies. And my argument this morning is that these words of Yahweh striking enemies on their cheeks, breaking the teeth of the wicked, these words should not make us upset. Rather, they should make us rejoice. Why? 
Because what you and I need is a God who can and does take vengeance on enemies whom we cannot defeat. And not merely in a physical sense, but more importantly in a spiritual sense, for every one of us here this morning have spiritual foes from which we must be delivered. The foes of Satan, sin, death, and hell. These foes, to use the language of Psalm, or the verses 1 and 2, these foes are many, these foes rise against us, and the anthem of their accusation against us is verse 2. There is no salvation for you in God. If you want to think about the anthem of accusation that rolls forward from Satan in his dark kingdom, the anthem of accusation of sin, death, and hell is, listen, there is no hope for you in God. None. You will not find salvation for your soul in him. Don't go there. That's the anthem of accusation of our enemies. Friends, listen. If deliverance is going to come, from these enemies, then it must come from our living God who alone has the power to strike and break these enemies. This past week, God solidified something in my heart. I used to be a little embarrassed of verses like this in the Psalms because they're just sort of hard to explain to the world around us. But the truth that was solidified in my soul is this. Thank you, God, that you can and will break and strike the enemies I cannot, cannot defeat. Friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that the good news of God's cross is that in Christ, all these spiritual enemies have been broken. When Jesus Christ was crucified and buried, only to be resurrected three days later from the dead by the power of God, guess what? Death got its teeth broke, hell got slapped, sin got broke, and Satan got owned. And that is good news for you. Because that's the God of, of Psalm chapter 3, verse 7. Doing the slapping and the breaking against the enemies that we could not and cannot defeat. So do you see it? At the cross, God struck all our enemies on the cheek and he broke the teeth of these wicked foes. This is our great confidence in him who is mighty to save. And now, instead of damnation, we get deliverance. And because salvation belongs to the Lord, his blessing is now on us who've been saved through faith in Christ who did the striking and the breaking. And the proof that his striking and his breaking of the enemies accomplished their defeat is that he's not a dead man in the grave. The hope of the resurrection is that he is the one who has power over these enemies that we cannot defeat, which is why I propose to you this morning, it is good news that your living God breaks and strikes enemies. And so here's the question. Here's the question. And it's rooted right there in verse 7. 
Verse 7 says, Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Men, women, children here this morning, have you cried out, Save me, O my God. Have you called out for this salvation? Now, you might be sitting here and you're able to say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that I know this salvation. I know that I have cried out, save me, oh my God. Some of us here might be a little less, a little less confident, a little less sure. And so I'm going to give you this question right here. It's a great diagnostic question and one that I promise and trust that God will yield great results is to ask yourself this question. Well, I don't, I don't know if I've, if I've called out if I have the salvation. Ask yourself, what is your hope in salvation? What is your hope in salvation? How you answer that question will help you understand whether you're relying on the Christ who broke and struck our enemies. Like if you stand before God and God's like, what, what's your hope of salvation right now? Why, why should I let you into my kingdom? And we say something like this, like, I really shouldn't be let into your kingdom. Like, I really have no hope. My hope is in the Christ who struck my enemies and broke their teeth, and he crushed Satan, sin, death, and hell. Like, that is my hope of salvation right now. That's the biblical answer. If you're like, I, I don't know if I can say that right now, then there's a, probably a pretty good chance that you have not called out for this salvation. You have not cried out, save me, oh my God. But that doesn't mean it has to be the case leaving here today. Today is the day of salvation. You can call on this living God right now. Save me, oh my God. And the promise of Scripture is that when we cry out for salvation in this way, this is a prayer that he not only hears, but delights to answer. And you can leave here today knowing the joy of full salvation, as we sung about earlier. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask that you would challenge us deeply this morning. God, from Psalm chapter 3, we have a great, great confidence in the Lord, Yahweh, who is mighty to save. Help us, help us turn our hearts to this living God. Jesus, I ask and pray these things in your name, Trusting that when we come before you in prayer and we pray along these lines again, we've got the promise of answered prayer. Father, some of us know the joy of full salvation. And would we respond now in a time of Lord's Supper and, and song, worshiping you in this way? Other of us cannot uh, answer what this looks like to have the joy of full salvation. And I'm asking that you, Holy Spirit, would plant these seeds deep into the heart and mind. Let not the enemy snatch them away. And would these questions yield the fruit of salvation in their soul? It's in your name, resurrected King Jesus, I pray. Amen.